What is up, guys? This is Louie, uh, and hopefully uh, you have heard our podcast last week of Danny preaching to us um, concerning the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. And today, keeping with the form, as we've been speaking and dealing with preaching quite a bit in our podcasts uh, previous to this, um, you guys are going to hear a sermon of from myself uh, in which I preach the sermon in the book of Genesis um, in a moment in time in the life of Joseph, specifically Joseph's redemption of sorts uh, coming from the pit to the palace. And if that scares you, then this is the message to hear because it is not a story of Joseph coming from pit to palace. It is something bigger than that. But I won't preach. I'll let myself preach previously i don't know how that goes but man i hope you guys have been enjoying us thank you so much again rate us and like us on apple podcasts uh but other than that let's dig right into it god bless guys let's pray together god be with us this morning as we continue in your word Remind us of the beautiful truths that we just sang a few minutes ago, that our souls would be stilled by the one who undertakes to guide the future as he has the past. Still our souls as we are reminded of this in Genesis 40 and 41. We love you so much, Lord, for you are our help and our deliverer. In Jesus' name we say together, Amen. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to grab them. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 41 uh, this morning, and that is in the Pew Bible, uh, page 32, uh, if you want to follow along in that. Unfortunately, we do not have it um, in the order of worship this, this week, um, so follow along like that or take your phones out or anything like that, it would work. Um, and while you're doing that, last night I had the privilege um, and I call it a privilege because it was an immense privilege and honor to go to uh, the Horseshoe Casino in Hammond, Indiana. And uh, I was not gambling. Uh, I was doing something far more rewarding. I was seeing with my mother um, three, not one, but three Elvis Presley impersonators. Yes. Thank you. Just gleam in that beauty for a second. And um, uh, something about myself, I am a huge Elvis Presley fan. Um, and as I was there with my mom and hearing each and every tune that was cranked out one after the other, I was just loving it. I was loving the moments where I said, man, these guys are great. And the moments where it was like, these guys are horrible. But nevertheless, I loved it. But there came a time when, we, um, when they sang a song by the name of Stand By Me, um, not the tune by Benny King. Um, it's a different tune. It's one of his gospel tunes. And as they sang it, uh, in the middle, the guy that was impersonating Elvis shared about all the great things that Elvis had done in his life. And... As I listened to that, I, I couldn't help but think how sad that was in that moment. Um, 
to hear all the great things he did while singing a song about God carrying us through the bad times. That when the storms of life are raging, God will stand by us. And as I sat there, I realized, uh, maybe for the first time that night, no, I didn't. I realized that, wow, all the, all the glitz, all the glamour, these are the best versions of Elvis in their mind. Uh, all of the things presented or all the things he did that was great, the charities he gave to, the music uh, that impacted the lives of others, but they never maximized on his life of being such a lonely man, of being a man that was so broken, that was so devastated by his own career that at the end of his career, he couldn't even look himself in the mirror. The self-professed king of rock and roll couldn't even come to grips with the person he had become, with the caricature that he had become. And as I sat there, I realized, man, this really robs from the experience because it's not the fool Elvis. Because you can't listen to the songs of his gospel tunes and hear the desperation in his heart that he himself was seeking a savior without seeing the lows in his life. Because brothers and sisters, we are a people in this room filled, this isn't only synonymous with Joseph this morning or Elvis, it is synonymous with all of us, that our life is not just built on the mountaintop, but it is also formed in the valley. And last week we left off at a place with Joseph being in a valley, thrown in the pit after the accusatory words of Potiphar's wife. Indeed, chapter 40, which we will only recap briefly, is a pit stop in the transition from the home of Potiphar to the palace of Pharaoh. Yet it is in this pit stop that we find out that whereas chapter 39 ends with us reading the words that God is with Joseph, chapter 40 shows us this truth in action. And how do we see this? By God giving two separate prisoners, a cupbearer and a baker, two separate dreams that will lead to two separate destinations, ultimately life for the cupbearer and death for the baker. See, the dream of these two men will indeed catapult Joseph into the very reason why God has placed him in Egypt, but not after some time of waiting and waiting, and waiting. See, because after this interpretation given to the cupbearer, Joseph says to him, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house." For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that should put me in this pit. And what happens, friends? The cupbearer, what we read at the end of chapter 40, is lifted from the pit. He returns to the service of the Pharaoh and promptly forgets about Joseph. And it's not just a few weeks. No, we will read soon that it is two whole years that the cupbearer forgets about Joseph. And how discouraging is this? That Joseph indeed had been forgotten by the cupbearer. 
And Joseph, in these rough days, if you can imagine with me, may have even looked back at the dreams that he had had that Jeff had spoke about a few weeks back uh, when he was at home. And maybe he began to wonder, were those, were those dreams, those grand dreams, a fabrication, a lie? Perhaps he even wondered, has my father forgotten about me? That he never came looking for me. He may have even thought in all of this, indeed God has forgotten about me. But friends, what we know that maybe Joseph didn't know in those two years in prison is that God never forgot about Joseph. One commentator said this about Genesis 40, when Joseph went to see his brothers, God knew the pit that was awaiting him. When he was in the pit, God knew the house of Potiphar that awaited him. When he was in the house of Potiphar, God knew the prison that awaited him. When he was in prison, God knew the Pharaoh's palace that awaited him. God is not just the God of the big things or the good things or the prosperous things. No, he is the God over all things, over all circumstances, all times, and all places. And this points us to Christ in his pit, sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane, awaiting his betrayal, praying for this cup to pass from him, only for him to end his prayer to the Father by stating, yet not my will be done, but yours. Brothers and sisters, that is the hope that we can see in chapter 40 this morning, that wherever we are this morning, know that God ordains and knows where we are headed next all the way into glory. But I wasn't entrusted with chapter 40. I was entrusted with chapter 41. So if you have your Bibles, we'll begin here. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there were none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Let's pause there for a second, because today's passage begins with what is truly a bizarre nightmare. First, we notice from the outset of the presence uh, of some type of cannibalism. Cows eating cows, grains, grains eating grains. We also see the inclusion of the sacred, the cows coming up from the sacred Nile River, and the grain sprouting from the east wind. But to make it all the more bizarre, the action shown in the passage is indeed a violation of nature. It is the unhealthy, thin, 
blighted cows and grain that attack, dismember, and consume the good, plump, healthy cows and ears of grain. And this causes Pharaoh to awake not once but twice to this bizarre dream that the Bible says caused his spirit to be troubled. Yet more than odd, these dreams Pharaoh knew were highly important. And the obvious reason for this is that being a Pharaoh, he, could, he was considered a god himself. So his dreams were given this special credence. Surely if the dreams of a cupbearer and a baker could tell the fates of life and death, friends, how much more could the dream of Pharaoh, a god among us, tell us about our futures? And if there was a list of what makes a dream important, surely this one would check all of the boxes. First, we see that the dream came in a pair, speaking to the certitude of what these dreams have to convey. That whatever it is in these dreams, they are sure to happen. And this is only maximized at how parallel they are to one another, a retelling of narratives with just a different cast of characters. Also, they are two extremely violent dreams. And lastly, both of these dreams were built on the number seven, which in the most cultural, which, which in most cultural circles, Egyptian included, meant perfection, effectiveness, completeness. All of this would have been in the mind of Pharaoh. And this was a dream that was highly important. But it also was shown by the astonishment of the narrator to the dream. For five times in just these eight verses, the word behold is used to give us a strong glimpse into how Pharaoh responds to this dream. And how does he re respond? He doesn't call a few magicians and a few wise men to come, but he calls all the magicians and all the wise men of Egypt so that they can interpret the dream for Pharaoh. Now, though this isn't explicit in the text, it isn't far off to assume that for these magicians and wise men, at least in my mind, three things could have been going through their mind. One, some could have been completely baffled by these dreams and thus didn't have a clue as to what was going on. Two, they could have attempted to interpret the dream, but their interpretation left Pharaoh unsatisfied. Or three, some of them could have had some sort of idea but opted to remain silent and thus probably save their head. <laughs> but whether this is the case, this dream leaves Pharaoh, what we read in that ending of that eighth verse, it leaves Pharaoh, Pharaoh incredibly astonished, yet satisfied, unsatisfied. And it continues here. Then the chief cupbearer, verse 9, says, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servant and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard when, he to when we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Now what, does the cup, what the cupbearer does here is interesting, friends. Because in recounting his prison experience, uh, he does a little PR work for himself and cleans up his side of the story. The first thing he does is he, uh, he neglects uh, to mention Joseph's proclamation that he indeed has no power to interpret dreams. Joseph states it right upon seeing their downcast face when he asks, does not God bring interpretation? And the second thing in that same vein, he neglects to mention that Joseph's proclamation that the power to interpret came from a specific God. Elohim, the Hebrew God. And third, he neglects to mention how he had promised to bring up his name to Pharaoh two years prior, but it slipped his mind. Nevertheless, Joseph is summoned, and that's the good news. And all we learn from these passages is that Joseph is utterly what I can call Egyptianized. He has a nice full beard growing, so they give him a nice shave. They change his clothes, they clean him up, and friends, he is ready. And I can hear the most motivational speakers using this to say he goes from pit to palace. He goes from zero to hero, all in a flash. All he has to do, though, friends, is play his cards right, and then it will be rainbows and sunshines from here on out. So what does he do? Well, the Bible continues and says, In verse 15, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. Now, before we continue, Joseph, after being in prison for quite some time, is finally in the presence of power. After being in a place of powerlessness, like a pit, nothing less powerful than a pit, it is interesting to see how he will respond. Because how many of us uh, would think in our mind that flattery in this instance is the way to go? Because it's anything to stay out of that pit. So let's see what happens. In verse 16 it says, And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give favor. God will give give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Friends, he doesn't fall victim to any of this flattery. Instead, he makes the proclamation, it's not in me. And quickly after this, he gives this absolute praise to God that God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Friends, from a social, political status, honestly, any way of thinking of this, this is the worst thing that Joseph could have said. Pharaoh tells Joseph, Joseph, interpret this dream because that's what you do, man. And Joseph, looking at him, says, actually, you're wrong, Pharaoh. I, myself, Joseph, I have no clue what your dreams mean. But God, and to be more specific, my God, Elohim, not any of your numerous Egyptian gods or you yourself, Pharaoh, but rather the true Hebrew God. That's who will give you the interpretation. And see, just like last week when Pastor Jeff made it so clear to us that we will never know the heart of Joseph, 
if he felt flattered or if he felt in the least bit tempted to lay with Potiphar's wife. Likewise, this week, we don't know if he wrestled with this answer in his heart, if he longed to flatter the self-professed son of the gods. But we do know that Joseph's response to praise in the palace was the same as his response to praise in the pit. Nothing worthy of praise in me, but everything deserving of praise in God. Because Joseph's knowledge of God rose above the impending power of this world because he knew that his God was far superior and sovereign over the gods of the Egyptians. So he continues in verse 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. And seven cows, plump and attractive, came out, up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on, a, on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do, that the seven good cows and the sev are the seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, the dreams are one. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he, he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and the plenty and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine and that will follow, and it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land, Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of these good years, that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a, a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. See, in the, in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, Joseph makes the proclamation throughout the interpretation of that dream that, God, that it is God-centric. It is a grand announcement to Pharaoh that all of Egypt's existence is controlled by the one true God. 
He states, God has revealed what he is about to do. Then he follows that with, God has shown what he is about to do. Then he closes with, these things are fixed by God, and God will shortly bring this about. And the dream speaks unto an impending great abundance and famine. And when we read, the language of Joseph sounds explicitly prophetic. More than anything, this prophetic voice speaks not so much to the course of what will take place in the coming 14 years, nor does it speak to the life of Joseph all that much, but rather it speaks to the sovereignty and omnipotent power of God against the counterfeit imposters. Concerning this, I love what Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann says. He says, the future in Egypt does not depend upon Pharaoh. He does not get to decide. In fact, Pharaoh is irrelevant and marginal in the future of the kingdom. Joseph has calmly announced in the Lord, uh, to the Lord of Egypt that the future is out of his hands. For in Genesis 41, it is clear that Pharaoh can cause no future. Nor, nor can he resist the future that God will bring. Friends, indeed, this is the good news of Genesis 41. That earthly kings, earthly rulers, they don't make history, but God does. God says this much to Cyrus in Isaiah 45 when he says, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I equip you, though you do not know me. And why? Well, God continues by saying this, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me, that I am the Lord and there is no other. Brothers and sisters, kings, rulers, presidents, mayors, governors, anyone in earthly power, they don't make history, they only serve it. And that is good news. That's why we read together this morning of the ignorant words of Pontius Pilate. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Only for Jesus to look at, at Pilate and say, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. For when evil rulers, when evil nations and administrations thumb their noses at justice and millions find solace in their words and cheer these evil establishments, when the wicked prevail and prosper without any repercussions, and when the righteous few are beaten and mistreated, remember that these wicked men and these wicked things don't make history. Remember who holds on to the chisel and the slate of history, and that is God and God alone. And this good news breathes forth in us or ought to breathe forth in us mission. Because the advice given, uh, given Joseph was only one that was fairly obvious. We'll take 20% of the prosper and uh, times that by seven to have this saving plan that we can use during the famine. But this plan was no doubt assisted, thought up, only by the knowledge of what God was going to do. Friends, the mission of this chapter is that the knowledge of God's purpose is not the end of human planning and action, but rather the beginning of it. That God's setting of the future creates a mighty summons for us to act. Though we know that in heaven we will hunger and thirst no more, we still ought to feed the hungry and help the malnourished while on earth. 
Though we know that the kingdom of heaven will ultimately be filled with every nation from all tribes and people and languages, we still ought to give ourselves to world missions. Though we know that all things work together for our good, we still ought to grieve for those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn. Though we know that God sets liberty to the captive, we still ought to confront the injustice of slavery that today numbers over 4 million slaves worldwide. Indeed, we see labored slavery, sexual slavery, forced marriage, child slavery, and they run rampant. Though we know that for those in Christ, all of our sins are nailed to the cross, we still ought to be what Martin Luther called creatures of repentance, both as individuals and as a church. Because it continues, what ends up happening after this, we'll read together in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. The chapter ends not as the summation of the story, but a progression into the history of Joseph's redemption. Since he has, since he has a little more power, we see that, but we also see that he is still a slave. On the surface, this is truly, like I mentioned, a rags to riches story. And who would have thought that the American dream could be lived out by a young Hebrew man plucked from his father, thrown in a pit, and through a series of events, it landed him to the number two in all of Egypt. Yet that's not what this episode is all about. Rather, it's about the ebbs and flow of life. Doesn't our lives feel very much like Joseph's life in some way? Once we find residency on the mountaintop, but before too long, we are wandering in the valley. But even this is just a small image of what we can resonate with our elder brother Joseph because we know that this narrative isn't about him at all, but about our elder brother Jesus, who on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Savior who endured the pits the deepest pit, and now sits on the greatest of seats. Friends, we must not forget that chapter 40 and 41 is not the end-all, be-all of Joseph's life. No, it comes and it continues. Though people bend the knee to him now, much like in his dream, he is still in a place of humility. Though he is adorned with precious clothing and jewels, much like his coat of many colors, he is still a slave. Though he is trusted and adored by Pharaoh himself, much like the love of his father Jacob, he is much more loved and adored by God. A God that for Joseph is not a remnant. A God that for Joseph is not a, a distant memory, not an impression. No, it's the real thing. And he walks with him 
and he knows where his steps will be. Brothers and sisters, this is the hope that we have, that God sees where we are at. He sees where we are going, and he is readily with us all the way. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, we are about to sing the lines, you are good to those who wait. So we wait. For you and you alone bring us this hope. You and you alone bring us salvation. Lord, be our help. Be our deliverer. Both in the valley and on the mountaintop. In Jesus' name we all say together. Amen.